sin. Well, if you'll turn in your Bible with me, please, to Genesis chapter 1. And again, we uh, welcome all of you who are visiting. And in our evening service, uh, we are going through uh, the Westminster Standards, particularly the Westminster Confession of Faith, as uh, we hope, if God should will and, and bless us, that uh, maybe sometime at the, by the end of the year we might be able to nominate uh, men for the office of elder and deacon. And so we want to re-familiarize ourselves with our standards, and also uh, we are wanting people who are new. We have people who are new to Presbyterianism. And uh, we want to let them know what, what we believe that the Bible teaches here. So tonight, we're going to look at uh, chapter 4 of the Westminster Confession. You may want to take a hymnal, too, and turn to the back to page 922. Page 922 in the hymnal. We'll start with the scripture and then... We'll read from chapter 4. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scripture and pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate it to our understanding. We pray that you would use it to build our affection for you. We pray also, Lord, you'd soften our will and make it pliable to your own. We pray, Lord, that we would delight in you and delight in your word, delight in the Lord's Day Sabbath. Thank you, Lord, for everybody that's here tonight. Lord, I pray that you bless each and every person, that they'd be encouraged, strengthened in their love and faith and commitment and zeal to Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord, that you would use them as witnesses to the truth of who your Son is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Genesis chapter 1, I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then from the Confession, chapter 4 of Creation, section 1, It pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. Section 2. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. Beside this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Amen. So tonight we want to talk about creation and Christ. Creation and Christ is our theme. Now, we read from Genesis, which of course would be the most natural book that 
we would want to read from on this subject. Genesis means origin or beginning, boys and girls. Uh, the English word Genesis comes from the Greek word transliterated. Now, it is the third most book quoted in the New Testament. Anybody want to guess what number one and number two are? Psalms is correct. That's the number one quoted book in the New Testament. And Isaiah. Isaiah is the second. So if you were to study three books of the Old Testament according to the frequency with which it is cited in the New Testament, Genesis would be a great place to start, and then Isaiah and the Psalms. So all three of those books. Now, Martin Luther, speaking of this chapter, says that the first chapter of Genesis is written in the simplest of language, yet it contains matters of the utmost spiritual importance and very difficult in understanding, in our ability to understand it. He said it was for this reason, as St. Jerome asserts, that among the Hebrews it was actually forbidden for anyone under 30 to read the chapter and expound it for others. Now, Ligon Duncan, who is uh, the president of Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, says that Genesis can be divided into two main sections, chapters 1 through 11, primeval history, and then patriarchal history, chapters 12 through 50, simplest way probably to divide this book. Now, we could uh, bear down on that and, and divide it and subdivide it further, but Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in this primeval history deals with creation. Chapters 3 through 5 deals with the fall and its effects. Chapters 6 through 9 deals with the flood, and then chapters 10 and 11 deal with Babel. So how do we begin our study of creation and the book of Genesis here? One of the things that we want to remember here is that when we read the Old Testament, we also want to keep in mind the light of the New Testament. We want to remember that the rest of Scripture inerrantly and infallibly interprets Genesis. That is, whenever one portion of the Bible uh, reflects on a, another portion of the Bible, it always does so inerrantly and infallibly. And so it, does, so it is with the book of Genesis. Now, the one of the things we want to see tonight is that Genesis, first and foremost, points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 5, verse 39. My congregation has heard me repeat this uh, many times. But Jesus said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And he said, they speak of me. And so the first thing we want to realize here is when we start our study on creation, we want to realize that the creation points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The scriptures of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 point us to our Savior. Now, also, uh, we are told in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 23 to 26, Hebrews tells us that Moses, who wrote, is the author of this chapter, uh, was looking ahead to his reward, we are told. Now, Moses, as he writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was looking to his reward. Well, who is his reward? His reward is the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we, Moses got a taste of that, didn't he? On the Mount of Transfiguration, 
When he got to stand in the land, by the way, he was forbidden from the land, wasn't he? But how did Moses get into the land? He got into the land through Christ. Remember, because of Moses' anger, uh, he, God said, Moses, you're not going in. I'll let you see it from a distance, but you're not going in. But then later in the New Testament, Moses and Elijah are there with Christ, reminding us that nobody takes the land except through Jesus Christ. And there he is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, so let's talk about the first part of this, verse 1. So look again at our text here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So notice here, the first thing that Moses tells us is the beginning, in the beginning. Now, what does this mean? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, the beginning refers to eternity past. In the beginning, before all history, there was God. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One true God and three distinct persons. Now, it's interesting that John, when he writes his gospel, starts his gospel echoing what Moses writes for us here. John, I think, self-consciously, under the Spirit, introduces the gospel with Moses' words in mind when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and that Word is Christ, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, that Christ created all things with the Father and the Spirit. So in the beginning, there was God. In the beginning was the Father and Christ, the eternal Son and the Spirit. So what is the significance of this? Well, this first verse in the Bible points us to the triune God and points us to our Savior Jesus Christ, even as he says in John chapter 5. One of the things that you need to realize is that protology leads us to Christology. Protology is the study of first things. The study of Genesis is important. Creation, the subject of creation is important because it points us to Jesus Christ. You know, I remember that, um, I think it was Doug Kelly, Dr. Doug Kelly said that he heard Francis Schaeffer say that if he had one hour with a non-believer on an airplane, he would spend 55 minutes talking about creation and five minutes talking about the gospel. The importance of creation should not be underestimated because it has great evangelistic implications and apologetic implications here. Notice here that the study of protology points us ultimately to the study of the cross. Protology leads to soteriology, where the Son of God who created all things enters into that creation and submits to death on a tree, something else God had created, that Christ had created, the very tree upon which he would hang for our eternal salvation, was created by Christ to save us from our sins. Notice that the New Testament tells us also that creation or protology has implications for the church, for ecclesiology. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, Paul says that he, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's speaking about Christ in creation. But then, 
Immediately after that, Paul says he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning. Do you hear what Paul is saying here? He starts off with Christ as the creator and the sustainer of the creation, and he moves immediately from Christ as creator and sustainer to Christ, the head of the church, that your Savior holds all power and authority in his possession, and he is also the head of the body to which you are personally united. You are in union with the one who created everything and sustains everything. So protology has implications for Christology, has implications for soteriology, has implications for ecclesiology, and you probably are guessing, it has implications for eschatology too, doesn't it? Look at 2 Peter chapter Second Peter chapter 3. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 has implicate the creation has implications for our eschatology. Look at uh, we'll start reading at verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Notice there it has implications for Christian ethics too. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with an intense heat. Now notice, this is what I want you to really hear. So the first creation will be destroyed, and then verse 13, eschatologically, but according to his promise, that is he who created everything, according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then he goes on to make the application, because you serve the God of creation and the God who is going to bring about the new heavens and the new earth eschatologically, he says, therefore, beloved, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Again, getting back to Christian ethics, so that our theology has practical relevance for our Christian living. At the end of the Bible in Revelation 22, in verse 13, I am the beginning and the end, says Christ. And yet, what do we find? Moses, going back to Genesis 1, in the beginning was God. What is Christ saying? Christ here is saying in the last chapter of the Bible that he was there in the beginning. He is the beginning and the end. Now, notice here the second part of verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God was there, Christ was there in the beginning. Now, some want to debate, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but some, whether this is a summary statement of the whole creation week or was this the first act of creation. Martin Luther argued for the latter. Uh, Bruce Waltke, quoting Luther, said, Heaven and earth are the, are, are the crude and formless masses up to that time. Calvin held a similar view, according to Waltke. Um, I want you to notice, though, uh, for our purposes tonight, that as I said earlier, the doctrine of creation is very practical for you and me when we are lovingly trying to witness to our neighbor 
or give a defense for the hope that is within us here. Let me give you a few examples from the New Testament. The first one, you don't have to turn there, comes from Acts chapter 14, verses 15 to 17 here. And this is where Paul is at Lystra. And after he heals a paralyzed man, uh, there is this rush of the crowd with Barnabas to st- uh, because they want to offer sacrifices. And Paul and Barnabas stop the multitudes from sacrificing an animal to them. They think Paul and Barnabas are some kind of gods come out of the pantheon down to heaven. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We're men just like you. But then what does Paul do? Paul says, you are to turn away from these things. That is, these false sacrifices to false gods. You need to turn to the living God. And Paul says, he's the God who made the heaven and the earth. So he points in his evangelism to the reality that they all knew. They live in a world of the heavens and the earth. And God is saying, the God who gave us the power to do this miracle, to do this wonder work on this paralyzed person is the God who has made everything you see around you. Also in Acts chapter 17, Paul at Mars Hill begins with God as the creator and then he moves to Christ in the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, as Paul writes his great epistle here, What does he do? He uses the doctrine of creation in apologetics in in Romans chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Even in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen, the creation, was not made out of things which are visible. That is creation ex nihilo. And that requires faith to believe. And this is why I think As Christians, we should be believing the biblical account of Genesis, historically and theologically. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 require you to believe. It requires faith to believe things that we may not fully understand. But how is that any different than what you're called to do in the New Testament? You're called to believe in the resurrection of Christ. And if you can't believe in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, how are you going to believe That Jesus has come back from the dead. Now the world, this has applications. Number one, the world we know therefore does not exist by cosmic chance. A lot of our friends and neighbors believe that the world exists by random chance. They believe that given enough time, all the particular parts and molecules came together at the exact moment to make everything work. But friends, you can't even do that with something as simple as a watch. Take your watch apart. Don't do it, kids. But hypothetically, take your watch and all its parts and put it in a box and shake the box for eternity. You're not going to get a working watch ever. doesn't matter how long the box is shaking back and forth. It doesn't work that way. And that's just a watch. That's nothing in terms of complexity to the universe in which we live. Number two, by way of application, it means your life has significance. All of you have significance. You are made in the image of God, and man created him, male and female. All have significance. I remember Richard Pratt telling us in seminary, he said, you ever want to kind of surprise somebody, maybe as a a way of evangelism or something, 
uh, and he, he said you could go up to them theologically and still be correct and say, your majesty. And in that, that you, have, you have been made as the pinnacle of creation on the sixth day. And there is great significance for you. And there's great significance for every individual. Number three. God who create, the God who created everything is also the Lord who redeems you in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God come into the world to save us from our sins. God in the flesh, fully God, God of God, light of light, as we say in the Nicene Creed. And yet he added to that full deity a humanity yet without sin, being conceived by the Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary in order to redeem us. Well, there's more I want to say about this. Doug Kelly, in uh, his book on creation, notes that the Bible does not open with an apology or an argument for creation. It simply begins with God as the presupposition there. God is, in fact, mentioned in the creation account 35 times. (laughs) In case you missed it the first time. (laughs) you got 34 more chances here. God is assumed um, among his readers because Genesis was written to the covenant people of God who had just been delivered by this God out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the Red Sea, brought brought to Sinai. And so his readers already would have been familiar with who Elohim is. Now, Elohim is in the plural here. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. It it is in the Hebrew, it's in the plural there. Now, there are various uh, interpretations of of the significance of this. Uh, And Elohim means almighty God or omnipotent God. And so the emphasis on one who is strong and mighty. But also it could be an honorific plural in the Hebrew where it conveys majesty. It's also consistent with the Trinity. Don't let those liberals... In, in your college religion class, tell you, oh no, the, you know, this cannot refer to the Trinity. Uh, you know, I had a liberal professor at our college say that, you know, uh, oh no, you know, the Jews didn't know anything about the Trinity. You can't, you can't import the Trinity into the plural here. Well, yes, you can. Because one, God reveals things to us over time and the revelation gets greater and greater. And, and so it, it, the fact that the full Trinity... Um, was always there in the Old Testament, though it may not have been fully revealed. Y'all remember when we talked about this, and I gave you the B.B. Warfield illustration? It's like your house at, at night in the dark, and the furniture is all there, but it's only when you cut the light on that there you see what was there the whole time. So it is with the Trinity. Um, Matthew 28, yes, gives us that great revelation of the name of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it certainly is theologically consistent and exegetically, I think, consistent with God's name being in the plural here. Also, what we see here is that what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we learn from that that God is intimately involved in the creation. He is a God who is personal. He is not impersonal as the deist view. Um, now, I know you probably don't have um, a lot of neighbors going around, you know, claiming um, a theoretical 
uh, assent to deism. Okay, not many people say, well, I'm a deist. Uh, but there, you do have a number of neighbors who may think like a deist. Um, I'll tell you, give you an illustration. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll tell somebody, well, I'll pray for you about this particular matter. And they'll say, well, I don't know. I, you know, I, I think God's got better things to do. Well, that's kind of a deist view. God, God's dealing with the big things, and God doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of life. There, That would be an example, I think, of a deistic perspective. A deist, boys and girls, in case you may not know, is kind of a view that God's like a big clockmaker. He makes it all, and he winds it up, and then he goes away. And I don't know where he goes or what he's doing, but he just kind of lets it operate on, on the laws of nature there. But when we see the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, we see a God who is intimately involved in making man from the dust and breathing into him. He makes man in his image. He's a God who himself rests on the seventh day as a pattern of our week. And we also see that he is sovereign. Look at Psalm 135 in your Bible. Psalm 135 and verse 6. Psalm 135. Notice here that the psalmist commenting on God as a creator shows us and emphasizes to us his sovereignty. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Notice there it doesn't say whatever the Lord pleases, he does, except with regard to your will. No, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth in the seas and in all the deeps. And then what does he do? He talks about the creation, doesn't he? He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain. He brings forth the wind from his treasuries. Then it goes on to redemption. He smote the firstborn of Egypt. Uh, and then it ends with praise and worship. O house of Israel, because your God is sovereign, because he's the creator, because he's the redeemer, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. It's to lead to worship. You who revere the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. We also see not only is God personal and sovereign, but God is good in creation. Notice that six times in verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, and verse 31, he pronounces six times, it was good. And it was good. And it was good. Now, because Genesis begins with God and it centers upon God, then our study and starting point must begin with God in the subject of creation. God's word, the Bible, has to be the starting point when we discuss creation. It's the word of God is the rock. It's the foundation. All other ground, Jesus says, is sinking sand. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that the man who hears my word and does it is like a man who builds his house on solid ground. But everyone else, including the materialist who rejects the creation account, is building his house on sinking sand. Doug Kelly, who I mentioned earlier, professor of theology, retired professor of theology now from RTS Charlotte, he wrote a book called Creation and Change, in which he cites an account 
of Dr. Schaefer, and I told you, Schaefer would begin with creation in doing apologetics, and then to the gospel. So the, the, the creation and the doctrine of creation is important, and it helps you connect to people in where they're living, literally, in the real world. is a very practical place to begin uh, when we discuss the things of God with people here. Now, we are dependent upon God to explain the events surrounding creation. I mean, none of us were there. Only God was there. And so it requires, as I said, from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, it requires faith. Now, let's make some applications here with regard to worldviews. Because the first verse of the Bible begins with God creating the heavens and the earth and everything in it, Joe, Pastor Joe Moorcraft notes that it excludes six things. Six things. First of all, it excludes, the very first verse of the Bible excludes atheism. Now, for our young children here, atheism means that somebody who does not believe in God. There are some people who say that there is no God. Ah means no or non. Theism means God. No God. Atheism. And so we see uh, that the very first verse of the Bible refutes this idea that there is no God, no creator. Secondly, Moorcraft says that it rejects polytheism. That there are many creator gods. Maybe you've got some neighbors who wonder, well, how, how do we know it wasn't made by some kind of committee? You know, and, and well, because the Bible tells us that there is but one and only one true God. The Lord thy God is one. It also rejects, now this one I think hits home to our day and age, pantheism. That is, people who believe that the creation is divine. People who believe that the creation is a form of God or uh, that God is all the creation. Now, God is everywhere present in the creation, but there is a, a distinction between the creator and the creation. Pantheism wants to mix the two. Also, it rejects dualism, the idea that there are two gods. Uh, maybe you have people who believe that there's a, a, an evil power and a good power, and, and they coexist. The yin and the yang uh, is kind of a form of dualism in Chinese philosophy and medicine. And then, this one too, I think, is very practical for our day. The ver first verse rejects materialism, that matter is ultimate and eternal. I can remember being in elementary school, and we, you know, they pull the TV out, and they turn on the PBS program Cosmos. You remember that with Carl Sagan? Billions and billions. Saturday Night Live made a skit about him. Remember, billions and billions. But what did, what did the, how did that program always begin? The Cosmos, says Carl Sagan, is all that is or was or will ever be. What's he saying there, boys and girls? He's saying all there is is the universe. All there is is material matter. That's all there is. Notice that he put it in almost Trinitarian way of speaking, the way the Bible speaks of God. You kind of see how blasphemous that idea is, that the material was and is and shall be forevermore. But that's a popular view in the United States these days. 
Romans chapter 1 speaks against this as idolatry. Paul condemns men giving the creation what belongs to God. Giving worship to the creation. Worshiping animals and creatures and things made by the imagination and hands of men. And then finally, number six, it, it refused deism. And I already spoke of deism. The idea that God is not involved in the creation anymore here. So the doctrine of creation gives meaning to life. It gives significance to life because God in Christ is life itself and he was there in the beginning with the Father and the Holy Spirit. One materialist named Leslie Paul says this, all life, this is a really sad sentence. Listen to this. This is coming from somebody who doesn't believe in God, boys and girls. All life is no more than a match struck in the dark and blown out again. The lonely planet, meaning us, the lonely planet will cool, all life will die, all mind will cease, and it will be as if it had never happened, unquote. You know, you can see when people imbibe that kind of philosophy, why you get also a philosophy or a worldview that says, as Paul put it, let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. We're just a match that's suddenly blown out and cools again. So what do we do? Life has no meaning, no significance, other than what I want to do. In other, it has no meaning other than myself. I make the meaning. But our, our text said, notice here, that God creates all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. That's what the heavens and the earth means. It's a way of summarizing everything, the whole universe, all creation. There is really no Hebrew word for the word we would use as universe. And so it uses the expression heavens and earth to serve as a compound, to mean everything within creation. Indeed, the, the word created in Hebrew is bara. The Hebrew word bara means to create. Did you know it's used uniquely of God in this verse, according to Bruce Waltke? There are other Hebrew verbs that speak of God creating elsewhere, and there are also other Hebrew words when man makes things. But the word bara is used here in creation. Some suggest that the reason for this is so that we would understand contra ancient Near East religions that where their gods would make the universe out of pre-existing materials. Our God made everything out of nothing, the doctrine of ex nihilo here. John chapter 1 verse 3, and then I'm going to make a few applications here. John 1, 3, all things came into being, John says, through him, through Christ. Notice how the New Testament takes Genesis chapter 1 and brings it to Jesus. John says that apart from Jesus Christ, nothing came into being that has come into being. And the point is, is that, that this Savior of ours is the one who created everything. And if he has the power to create everything, he has the power to redeem everything as well. Romans chapter 4, verse 7 while not speaking directly to the issue of creation, the passage does show, nevertheless, that God brings 
things into being that once did not exist. A few thoughts as we close tonight. Number one, the glory of God is creator. The glory that we see of God in the creation itself is brighter in the Savior himself. God's wisdom, power, goodness, imagination, transcendence, righteousness is all displayed in the creation. Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. But the Bible also says that the same wisdom is revealed even more fully in the person of Jesus Christ. If you really want to know the wisdom and the power and the goodness and the transcendence and the righteousness of God, you need to commit your life to Jesus. You need to believe on God's Son. If you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, you have not yet received the fullness of God's revelation for you. A lot of people say, oh, if I want to get near to God, I can, I can go out in the woods, I can go on the golf course, I can go out fishing, I can go to the mountains of Colorado. Well, yeah, you can see something of the beauty of God's creation and something of the attributes of God's creation. But if you really want to know God, he makes himself known ultimately in his son. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 And he, Christ, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, says the author of Hebrews. To know Jesus Christ by faith is to know the living God and to behold his glory. So I want to urge you to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've grown up here in the church, young people. Maybe, you know, you've heard the stories before, but have you made that commitment yet to Christ? Maybe you're visiting, you don't have a church home, you didn't come from a religious background. How do I know who God is? You come to know him through faith in his son. Number two, we also need to remember the, the reality that the Bible puts forward, that God the Creator, who has created all this wonderful world, marred and affected by sin, but yet still showing <coughs> excuse me, His majesty and glory, He has also created a heaven and a hell. And as we read from Second Peter, He will bring about the new creation in Christ on that last day. But we also need to talk about the hard reality that God has created a place called hell. And that too is real, though you may have not seen it. The Bible says it is real, it is eternal, and it is described as a place of fire and yet also as a place of outer darkness. Some take these words literally, others metaphorically. But as R.C. Sproul said, if it's metaphor, the reality is worse. It is a place of the greatest human misery. People speak all too casually about hell on earth. But the worst scenes of human history do not compare to the judgment of God. For those who have rejected him, that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But God also has created a heaven. Jesus has told us, I go to prepare I go to create a place for you. 
And in my Father's house, there are many mansions. The good news is also that God who created all things has prepared a place for those who love him and that he has built it specifically for you. Third application. If you're like me, you watch the news, you read the news, and you get discouraged regularly about what's going on in our country. And you get discouraged at the way that our culture is rejecting the Lord. But we need to realize that God is going to have a new creation, and there's a judgment day coming. And the world might have its temporary little victories. But ultimately, God through Jesus Christ is going to prevail. God has promised that his church will grow through it all. That the the gates of hell will not prevail. The defensive gates of the kingdom of darkness will fall. They will fail. The kingdom of Christ will grow, will multiply, will leaven. The nations will stream to Christ. And in the end, Christ will return with glory and power to judge the living and the dead, bringing about the new heavens and the new earth. We need to know that the God who has the power to create everything in the heavens and the earth has the power to build his church. You remember, and I've said this to my own congregation, but those of you who are visiting here, you remember how God told Abraham, Abraham, go outside. Go outside your tent. Look up at my creative powers at work. Count the stars if you can. So shall your descendants be. You know, the scientists tell us that if you were to go down to Panama City Beach, got on that white sandy beach and with an open hand, grab a handful of sand and threw it up into the sky, that would be about the equivalent of how many stars you can see on a clear night. Those same scientists tell us that there are the probability is that there are as many stars as there is grains of sand. You just can't see them. The point to Abraham was, Abraham, you're an old man, you got an old wife, and you got no natural heir from Sarah, and I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And what does the book of Hebrews tell us? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, that's in Romans. But then the author of Hebrews says he did not look at the weakness of his own body. He exercised faith in the God who made the stars, and he said, I'll also believe that the God who made the stars will also make the new heavens and the new earth, and my descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And what does Paul tell us in the book of Galatians? Every person no matter what their ethnic background is, who believes in Jesus Christ, becomes a child of Abraham by faith. Doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, doesn't matter what your genealogy is, doesn't matter what your nationality is, 
the person in Africa, the person in Asia, the person in Central and South America, the person in Europe who believes in Jesus Christ is engrafted into the family tree of Abraham. The God who told the old man, look up and believe on my creation and my power to create. Believe also in my power to redeem and to glorify. Do you believe in that God yet? Have you come to believe in God, in His Son, in His promise? The New Testament says that the Word of God and the promises of God are yes and amen when you believe in Jesus Christ.